Remain standing for our gospel lesson and sermon text from Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Give your ear to God's word, to God's gospel. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on the hearing and reading and preaching of his word. God, we confess once again that we need your spirit, the spirit who inspired these words, to be among us so that we can hear what you have to say and apply it to our hearts and believe your promises in it. And so do a mighty work among us today this morning. Accomplish your good purposes through your word and by the power of your spirit for the sake of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. We're taking a break from Romans. Romans is pretty dense and so I was thinking, well, let's, let's do a story from the Gospels that illustrates some of the truths that we're talking about, particularly in Romans 3. Uh, but I'm afraid this story is pretty intense too. Whenever we read any of the Lord's parables in the Gospels, we must ask, who am I in the story? Which character am I? Bobby talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago in his sermon on the and the Good Samaritan. And the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, who do you identify with? In this case, there's just two characters. And as Protestant, Bible-believing Christians who believe in total depravity and salvation by grace alone, as a work of God, not of man, we surely identify with the tax collector, right? Right? I mean, we definitely are not Pharisees, so we must be the tax collector. After all, we're Reformed, and being Reformed means being the opposite of the works righteousness Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they believed in justification by status and justification by works. They tried to make themselves righteous rather than trusting God for righteousness. As Jesus puts it, they trusted in themselves. 
And multiple times in the Gospels, Jesus accuses the Pharisees and the other religious leaders in Israel of trying to justify themselves. That's that's the language our text uses. In verse 9, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who despised others. And so we see here this language of uh, righteousness, the same language Paul uses in Romans 3 and throughout Romans, of being righteous before God. And they were looking to that righteous, for that righteousness in themselves. And so in other words, he was speaking this parable to the Pharisees. And that's why he makes one of the characters a Pharisee. And surely we can't identify with the Pharisee because we're children of the Protestant Reformation. We're reformed. We believe in salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Faith in God, not ourselves. If there's one thing we Calvinistic Christians get right, it's that we are declared righteous by God through faith, not by works. Our righteousness is from God, not from ourselves. And and so this is... We're not Pharisees. But, but not so fast. You saw that coming, right? Not so fast. Actually, the Pharisees, including the Pharisee in this parable, I know it's a, it's a fictional character, but the Pharisee in this parable, representative of all the Pharisees, believed in the reformational doctrine of grace alone, or something very much like it, at least confessionally. The Pharisees were the conservative, Bible-believing, religious people of the time. They were the straight-laced evangelicals who believed in the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. All of Scripture, not like the Sadducees who just believed in the the books of Moses. They had a high view of God, a high view of God's election and God's grace. We get a glimpse of this in the way the Pharisee begins his prayer in verse 11. God, I thank you. And so he starts ostensibly by giving credit to God. This Pharisee viewed his righteousness as a gift from God, it appears. And so if you ask this Pharisee, he would tell you that God's grace is the reason he's so much better than everybody else. These other sinners... And so in verse 11, the, the Pharisees essentially saying, there but for, but for the grace of God go I. You've heard that, right? There but for the grace of God go I. If it were not for the grace of God, I'd, I'd be that horrible sinner over there. And so he begins his prayer with gratitude for the gift of grace. It's a, it's a, it's a decent start. But the, the prayer goes downhill real fast. It quickly descends into self-righteousness, doesn't it? And before he finishes the first sentence, he shows his true colors, what he really believes down deep, in spite of what he might confess. We learn then from the Pharisee's prayer that it's quite possible to have the right theology in place, to have the right books on your shelf, to, to follow the right podcasts to have the right creeds and confessions in your church constitution it's possible to confess with your mouth that your that your salvation is by grace alone all the work of God 
even while you are trusting in yourself that you are righteous and treating others with contempt. Luke does us a favor here at the beginning of this passage. He tells us exactly what kind of person and exactly which sins that this parable is designed to address. In, in seminary and preaching class, I was, they, they taught us to, you know, when you're preparing a sermon, find what, what uh, the professor called the fallen condition focus, right? So what's, what's this text addressing? What problem, sin, or fallen condition, right? Well, well Luke spells it out for us. It just comes right out. Not, not every passage of Scripture does that. Sometimes we have to do the, some hard work to figure it out. But this one does. The parable is clearly aimed, verse 9 says, at those who trust in themselves that they are righteous. Self-righteousness. And so is that you? Is this parable addressed to you, if that's who it's addressing? Now, I know what you believe on paper. I know you have a high view of God and His sovereign grace, just like the Pharisee. You might even call yourself a Calvinist, an Augustinian, child of the Reformation. But the question stands, do you trust in your own righteousness? The powers of self-deception make it hard to answer this question honestly, doesn't it? Don't they? It's easy to tell yourself what you want to hear. Of course, I don't trust in myself. That would be ridiculous. I trust in the righteousness of Christ alone. So thankfully, Luke doesn't leave us entirely to our own devices. He, he gives us a, a key to diagnosing our self-righteousness. It's at the end of verse 9. Do you see it? If you want to know how much, and we all, it's not a matter of if, it's really a matter of how much. If you want to know how much you trust in your own righteousness, look at how you think about other people, how you treat them, how you talk about them, how you think about them in your own head. The last phrase of verse 9 says, this, says that this parable is for those who treat others with contempt. That could be very outward, right? Visible. It could also just be in your heart. So that's the key to determining how much, to what extent you trust in yourself. You see, self-righteousness always has one quality, sometimes visible, outward quality. It always, without fail, despises others, looks down on others. Self-righteousness always treats others with contempt. If you despise others, then as a rule, you are trusting in yourself and your own righteousness. And that's, that's just the way this works. They, they go together. You, 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 you don't have one without the other. When you have one, you have the other. Self-righteousness and self-trust are a packaged deal. Well, we still haven't fully escaped the problem of self-deception. Determining whether or not you have that sort of uh, disposition or orientation or bad attitude toward others can be tricky. After all, if you despise someone, uh, you have good reasons, right? It's righteous anger. It's holy contempt. 
justified bitterness. You would be too if, if they did that to you. Or, or is it? What, what are some clues to help us know if we've fallen into the sin of showing contempt, visible or invisible, toward other people in our lives? Well, first, I want you to consider how you view the authorities in your life. Children, how do you view your parents? Okay, adults, we all have authorities in our lives. How do you, how do you think about them? Let me, let me ask you more specifically. Do you pray for your government authorities and your employer, your boss, uh, and, and your church leaders at least as much as you criticize them? Or consider how you view other Christians, the brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you look down on Christians who aren't as smart as you, who don't have as good of a theology maybe as you do? Do you inwardly judge those who don't have the same convictions on certain things? Maybe the same convictions as you do about child rearing or education or managing money, maybe politics, something like that. Important things. But do you let it become too important so that you judge others and look down and despise them and treat them contempt when they disagree with you? Do you believe you have anything to learn from other Christians in general, but, but particularly other Christians in, in, in other denominations, other traditions, other theological heritages? Or do you merely think that you have, have got it all figured out and you have nothing to learn, even from the people that you rightly disagree with? Do you thank God that you're not like the rest of evangelicalism? Perhaps you think that mo of most evangelical Christians outside your theological circle as spineless or as compromisers, as cultural dropouts who don't believe Jesus is going to win, something like that. Those phrases come to your mouth often. One of the telltale signs of a self-righteous person is that he can see others' shortcomings with, you know, laser focus vision, right? He, very clearly. And, and even, he can even, he's so good at it, he can even see things that are not actually there while being blind to his own wickedness. So right off the bat in verse 9, Jesus tells us what he's confronting. It's self-righteousness. But he also indirectly tells us what true righteousness looks like. We, we can deduce that. Just as self-righteousness is manifested in the way we treat others, so true righteousness, true godliness is manifested in the way that we treat or relate to other people. How we think about them, talk about them, engage with them. The way you treat others, whether it's to their face or in secret, may even be in the secrecy of your own heart, the way you think about others and talk about them and treat them reveals whether you're trusting in God for your righteousness or trusting in yourself that you are righteous. This principle is especially true with regard to how you treat those that you perceive as less mature than you, less sanctified, less put together, less theologically astute. 
So how do you look at people that don't have it all together? To the parents who don't do right by their kids publicly. To the person who is overcome with the besetting sin that you aren't tempted by or that you've overcome. Genuine righteousness as opposed to self-righteousness. Genuine godliness is always accompanied by genuine humility. Genuine humility toward God and toward those who are not where you are. Humility is the first and the foremost spiritual virtue in Christ's Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember in Matthew 5 how Jesus opens up his three-chapter sermon, which is probably condensed even then. What, what's, what's he say right at the beginning? Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are the humble. Blessed are the, the lowly. Those who know their spiritual destitution. Blessed are they, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Everything then in the Sermon on the Mount flows from this opening statement about humility. So humility is the gateway to the Christian life. It must be. Christian, you will do good to internalize the truth that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. As Jesus puts it at the end of this parable, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And that's by God. God will humble you excuse me, or God will exalt you depending on what you do. This is the spiritual principle playing out in our parable this morning. And if you've lived long enough, and it doesn't even really have to be that long, you've seen this principle played out in real life. Perhaps you yourself have even been the object lesson that illustrates this principle. As we walk through this story that Jesus told, think of the ways in which you need to humble yourself. That's the real application point here. Specifically, think about people that you need to humble yourself before or toward. Maybe it's somebody, maybe it's something that you need to do with that person, or maybe it's just something, business that you need to do in your own heart. And maybe someone whose sins or shortcomings or poor decisions really, really irritate you. Or maybe someone whose choices have caused you actual pain, directly or indirectly. You may be tempted to think more highly of yourself than you do of that person. Perhaps you need to be reminded of what Paul says in Philippians 2, 3. In humility, value others above yourself. It's not, not just those who you think deserve it. It's a discipline that you do, whether you think they deserve it or not. And maybe somebody in this body that you despise or even avoid because there could be a number of They're different from you or they're just annoying or too blunt or because they don't share the same worldly interests. Or it may be because they don't appear to be on the same spiritual plane as you. Who in your life do you despise and treat with contempt? And, and what you're looking for is, is, is subtlety here. It's not going to be obvious, right? 
Maybe there's some, some ways that it's obvious, that you just know, I hate this person. I talk about it, and I, I, I think about it every day. But probably it's more subtle than that for most of us. The first sentence of the parable is recorded in verse 10 there. He says that there were two men, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the context is the temple, which is where they go to pray. We get a win, we get, their, their prayers are put up on the screen for us. And it's important that this story takes place in the temple. And we're going to come back to that toward the end of the sermon about the, the context of the temple. That's very important. But, but just, for now, I just want to point out, I guess, the obvious. The central content of this story is two prayers by two men. And so, and so we could call this, this parable the tale of two prayers. That's important. We might, you know, we might think of different ways that, that Jesus could have made his points, theological and spiritual points. But he chose to frame the parable around the prayers of two different people. Why is that? Why do you think that? Well, it's because a person's, could be a lot of reasons. I think one reason, a person's prayer life is the reflection of his whole life. Your prayer life is a, ref, a reflection of your whole Christian life. Your, your prayer life says everything there is to say about your entire Christian walk. Now, for the next minute or two, that, that was uncomfortable, but for the next minute or two, I'm going to, I want each of you to imagine something very horrifying, even more horrifying than what I just said. It's going to be hard, but just try to do it. Imagine that an audio and video recording of all your prayers from the last week, maybe last month, were, were played upon these, these screens up here for everyone to see. Okay? You know, we could hear and, and see your prayer life. What would we discover about you? At the very least, we discover everything there is to know about your spiritual condition. At the very least. Right? We discover the depth of your walk with Christ. We discover what's most important to you. We discover how much or how little you depend on God by seeing how much or how little you pray. So, some would have a long video. Some would have a very short video. I'm afraid some, a few may have no video. Is there anything about your spiritual state that we, that we wouldn't be able to discern by observing a week's or a month's worth of your prayers. I doubt it. I doubt it. So when Jesus wanted to illustrate two different orientations toward God, when he, when he wants to compare two guys at the opposite ends of the spiritual spectrum, how does he do it? He goes straight to their prayers. Your prayers or the absence of your prayers, as the case may be, speak volumes about who you are, about what you're about, 
not just how much you pray, though that says a lot in itself, but also who and what you pray for. How needy are you in prayer? What's your posture in prayer? Does the sense of your need ever drive you to your knees? Or the sense of your sinfulness ever drive you to your face? How biblical are your priorities in prayer? Are your prayers driven by God's word and God's will or by your felt needs? Are they self-centered, like the Pharisees, or God-centered, like the tax collectors? Your prayers are the window into your soul. Your prayer life is the essence of your entire Christian life. So what if your prayer life was on display the way the, prayer, the prayers of these two men are on display. Well, in the first part of verse 11, Jesus says the Pharisee is standing by himself. The New King James Version says, he stood and prayed thus with himself. Now, with himself is a striking way of putting this. You know, if, if, in, in all languages, in, in English and also in the Greek, it's, you get to this part, it's like, what? What? <clears throat> It means that he's bent in on himself. He is, he's really praying to himself is what it's saying. It's, it's not with reference to God. Self, this self-orientation is confirmed right away too in his actual prayer. He uses the first person pronoun, I, five times in a matter of two verses. I mean, God gets a mention at the beginning as we saw, but then it's I, 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 after that, the, the Pharisee's prayer is self-centered and self-congratulatory, revealing his self-centered, self-congratulating heart. But perhaps the most striking thing about this prayer is, is what's missing, what's absent. He doesn't ever petition God for anything. I mean, and, and it's longer than the tax collectors. He had, he had, he had time. But what we see here is the Pharisee isn't needy. He's self-sufficient. He's not God-reliant, but self-reliant. Now, some, some might consider it honorable or, or more manly to need no one, to be dependent on no one. And so when I go to God, I just, you know, I tell him, thank you for what he's done, but I don't need anything, and I don't need people. But there's nothing virtuous about not needing God, and really nothing virtuous about not needing people either. The prayer that doesn't ask God for anything is not a model prayer. We have a model prayer, the one Jesus gave us, and it instructs us to make requests to God. The petitionless prayer is not a pious prayer. A person who requests nothing from God is proud. He's a proud person who is of no use for God's kingdom. Another problem with the Pharisees' prayer is even the prayer of thanksgiving is what he gives thanks for. Okay, it looks promising, right? I thank you, God. And then what do we, what's he give thanks for, though? Many, many of the prayers in the Bible, especially in the Psalms, start out by thanking God. Gratitude to God is a good thing, important. It's necessary in prayer. 
the big difference, though, is that biblical prayers give thanks for God's great and righteous deeds, his mighty acts, especially his mighty acts in creation and salvation and redemption. But did you notice what the Pharisee gave thanks for? He gave thanks to God for his own great acts, his own righteous deeds. Perhaps the most significant difference between the two prayers is what's missing from the Pharisee's prayer again. Unlike the tax collector, the Pharisee never gets around to acknowledging his sinfulness. He certainly doesn't begin his prayer by confessing his sin to God. And based on what he says, it doesn't look like there's ever going to be room for something like that. One of the most important things you can do for your spiritual health is to regularly get down on your knees, on your face, and confess your specific sins. And and that word specific is important. In detail to God. Not, Not just, you know, forgive me for that thing I did or for my anger or for my lust. Specifically. The corporate confession of sin uh, on, on, on Sunday mornings, we are, we've already done it. That, that should not be the only time during the week that you bow before God and acknowledge your wicked deeds to Him. You, you don't have enough time during that 30 seconds to really do what you need to do every day throughout the week. You can't catch up in that time. If, if you aren't regularly humbling yourself before God in this way, if you're not in the habit of naming your sins to God in painful detail, painful detail, the two, then two things are going to be missing. Two things are going to be true, I should say. You're going to be spiritually anemic and you're not going to know yourself well at all. You're going to be spiritually anemic, weak, and you're going to have no self-awareness. The best way to cultivate self-awareness, to curb self-deception regarding your sins, is to bring your unrighteous deeds before God continually. Talk to God about your sins in a way that makes you feel very uncomfortable. That's, that's also, by the way, the best path to victory over those sins. Honest confession of sin to God is the gateway to lasting repentance. It starts there. So the first thing the tax collector does when he comes before God is to acknowledge that he is a sinner. The tax collector is not like that proud, self-righteous Pharisee. He's truly not like him. Notably, though, he doesn't thank God for that. He doesn't say, I thank you, God, that I'm not like that self-righteous, self-deceiving, self-centered Pharisee over there. He's not proud of his humility, which, which can be a temptation, right? When the Spirit begins to work humility in your heart, when you begin to combat the sin of self-importance and self-righteousness in your heart, your flesh, when that happens, your flesh is going to give you all kinds of reasons to boast 
as, as the passage from Romans said today. Reasons to feel good about your accomplishment. And so immediately you find yourself having to do battle with yet another layer of self-righteousness. It's a never-ending battle till we die. C.S. Lewis talked about this, this uh, dynamic at length in, in one of his famous quotes is humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. We, we could also put it this way. Humility isn't self-hatred. It's self-forgetfulness. Pride is forgetting about God. Humility is forgetting about yourself. The Pharisee had forgotten about God. <laughs> Nowhere to be found, really. He says his name, but he's praying to himself. Very mindful of himself and his good deeds. He prayed with himself, to himself. And his prayer was fundamentally about himself. I, 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 I. The tax collector, on the other hand, was God-focused. His prayer was God-centered and self-forgetful. Notice in verse 13 that Jesus says the tax collector was standing afar off. So they're both standing. One with himself, toward himself, by himself. The other afar off. That's, that's, there's a contrast there with verse 11, where Jesus says that the Pharisee was standing by himself. The Pharisee was oriented toward himself, even in his posture, as well as in his words. The tax collector, on the other hand, is so aware of his sinfulness that he stands far off in humility and doesn't even lift his eyes to heaven. This is the posture of a sinner who knows his need of God's grace. Now, we, can, we need to balance this, right? The other places in the Bible tell us to approach the throne of God with confidence, with boldness. The blood of Christ covers your sins, so you can pray to God confidently, as a prophet, prophetically. But it's also good and right to come to God with the kind of broken spirit that the tax collector has. It's the same broken spirit that David had when, when he finally came to his senses and confessed his murder and adultery and deception to God in Psalm 51. Before you can pray prophetically, powerfully, and with boldness, with your eyes toward heaven, you must come to God humbly, contritely, and with a broken spirit over your sins. So it's not either or. It's both and. Verse 13 says the tax collector beat his breast as he prayed. This is an expression of contrition, of brokenness. And that phrase, beat his breast, is a, is a quite interesting phrase because in all of Greek literature, it's used a total of two times. And both, this is really fascinating, both of those times are not only in the New Testament and not only in the Gospels, but in Luke. It's used here in Luke 18 and then again in Luke 23. And so when, when, a, when an author does something like that, we, he's, he's wanting us to make a connection. So let's do that. You don't have to turn there. But Luke 23, 48 says that whenever the crowds who crucified Jesus realized that Jesus was the Son of God, 
they returned home doing what? Beating their breasts. An expression of their regret and contrition. They had crucified God. They had sinned greatly. The tax collector beats his breast for a similar reason. He recognizes that his sin, in effect, is an attempt to put God to death. That's, that's really what sin is, isn't it? Behind every sin is the, is the desire for God to be dead, out of the picture, just like the, the prodigal son before he left. He wanted his dad out of the picture. Like he, just, he just wanted the inheritance. If he was dead, it had been a lot easier. The tax collector realized that up to now, he had essentially wished that God were gone. Not a bother, not, not in the picture, not requiring anything. In his sin, he wanted what the crowds in Luke 23 wanted when they cried, crucify him, crucify him. So he beats his breast in humility and repentance, just as the crowds in Luke 23 did after they realized they had killed the Son of God. The tax collector's prayer itself, it's pretty short. It's packed, but short. And it's translated something like this in most translations. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now the verb be merciful is a fine translation. It, um, it could be translated though, we might say more literally, more formally, as be propitiated. That's it's the verb form of that noun propitiation that we've been studying in Romans 3. For God to be propitiated toward you means for God's anger toward you to be satisfied, removed, no longer directed at you. And God is angry. He, he does have wrath against you, against your sin, against you as a sinner. And it has to be dealt with. It can't, he can't just turn a blind eye to it or sweep it under the rug. It, he must be propitiated, satisfied, appeased, turned aside in order for you to be saved and not to come under the judgment of, that, that you deserve because of your sin. To say that God is propitiated toward you is to say that his wrath against your specific sins has been turned away. And it's to say that it's been directed at something or someone else. All right? So when, he, when it's turned aside from you, it's directed at something or someone else. It's not just cast into oblivion. It has to, be, it has to land somewhere. In the Old Testament, God's anger and wrath were propitiated, satisfied, through the blood sacrifice, the animal sacrifices. Now, of course, we find in the book of Hebrews that those animal sacrifices in themselves were inadequate to deal with sin. God honored them, but it's only because they pointed ahead to the sacrifice, the all-sufficient blood of Christ. Before the cross, the animal sacrifices were all that the people of God had. But by the time Jesus was born, and in, in the years leading up to his birth, the people of God had come to believe very deeply that a greater sacrifice was needed and was coming. 
a sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. When the tax collector says, God, be propitiated toward me, a sinner, he's expressing a longing that was common among God's people at the time, a longing for God in his Messiah, through his Messiah, to come to the temple, which is where he was when he prayed it, to come to the temple and offer a once-for-all sacrifice that would truly atone for sins. This is what the Jews were talking about. It's important background, important context. And that's what the Jews were hoping for and praying for, anticipating. And we need to see that in this prayer by the tax collector. They they yearned for the Messiah to come and they anticipated that when he came, he would come to the temple of God and offer a super sacrifice that would truly propitiate God. He would be propitiated. And it's because they knew down deep that something more was needed. Sin is too great for all of these sacrifices over the centuries combined. They longed for a once-for-all sacrifice that would actually deal with the sin problem. Of course, no one in Israel anticipated that this once-for-all sacrifice would be what it ended up being, that it would be the Messiah himself, not just the Messiah offering some animal sacrifice, but it would be, he would himself be the sacrifice. No one imagined that the Messiah would propitiate God by offering himself up on a Roman cross. That's just not what they, that's not the conclusion they reached. But that's how it was fulfilled. That's how this prayer in Luke 18, was ultimately answered. A key difference between, another key difference between these two prayers is that while the Pharisee thanks God that he's not a sinner, the tax collector confesses to God that he is a sinner. But there's more going on there. He actually says, God be propitiated toward me, the sinner. Didn't have to use the, the definite article, but he did. So the last two words of Luke 18, 13 are the sinner. And it may be even worth noting that in your Bible. This tax collector, who was obviously more righteous than the self-righteous Pharisee, never thought once that he was. It didn't cross his mind. That's just not what he was thinking about. The one thing that the Pharisee and the tax collector have in common, the one thing that they they have in common, that they agree on, they're both focused on the sinfulness of the tax collector. The tax collector knows nothing other than his need for the coming Messiah's atoning sacrifice. He needs God's wrath to be turned away from him as badly as anyone on the the planet, including this Pharisee. Do you believe that about yourself? 
of all the people in this sanctuary, do you classify yourself as the sinner in the room? The tax collector was, on the top, was at the top of his own list of all the sinners he knew. Okay, make a list of all the sinners you know. First one, it was him, himself. Are you at the top of your list of sinners? People that have things that really need to be dealt with, that they need to, be, that they need to repent of, that they need to stop doing. You're at the top of that list. Verse 14 brings the irony of this story into sharp focus for us. The man who considers himself the chief sinner is the one who ends up being declared righteous by God. While the man who parades his righteousness before God goes home unrighteous. Declared unrighteous. The humility of the tax collector is hard to find. A humble man is hard to find. A poor spirit is a rare breed. So I ask again, as I did at the beginning of the sermon, which of these two guys do you identify with? Now, most of us, right, all of us really, identify with, with both. I mean, if you're a believer, God has worked into you the awareness of your sin. That's what it means to be a believer. You know your need, but still, the inner Pharisee in every one of us rears his ugly head sometimes quite often. And so tonight, even right now, before you go to bed, and and every day this week during your quiet times, examine yourself, and examine yourself in two ways. First, look at your prayer life. Okay, put it up on the screen and, and, and look at it as an outside observer. It's hard to do, but, but do it. And if it's true that your prayers reflect your spiritual condition, consider what this means about your spiritual condition, your walk with the Lord. How dependent are you on God? In other words, how much do you pray? How God-centered are your prayers Does God recognize his will in your prayers? Can he find his will anywhere in there? Do you come to God as a sinner, as the sinner in desperate need of his grace? Imagine that your prayer life was on display for all to see and then remember that God, who sees everything you do in secret, it is on display to him, he's ready to bless and reward your humble God-centered, God-dependent, Christ-honoring, spirit-led, kingdom-minded prayers. And then ask also about your prayers, do I begin with confession? Do I come to God confessing my sinfulness and naming my sins? Second, Look at your thought life. We, we could extend this to your, your words that you speak or write. But, but it all starts in your heart. It starts in your thoughts. 
It's what you say and how you treat others is an overflow of what's inside. So, so look at your thought life. Who do you despise? Who, who do you have contempt for, even if it's in, as I said, in the secret chambers of your heart? Imagine that all your thoughts about everyone were on the, on the screens. What would we see? Is, who, is there someone you hate? Who do you resent? Who do you gossip about with close friends or maybe just with your spouse in your bedroom at night? Identify at least one person this week that you need to change your heart toward. And then ask God to root out the bitterness, to root out the prideful, self-exulting spirit toward that person. And, and, and you know, don't just say the prayer and go on. Wrestle with God in prayer until he gives you the blessing, like Jacob did. Ask him to remove your self-righteous attitude and to enable you to obey Romans 12, 3, which says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Beg God to transform you into the kind of person who, in humility, considers others better than yourself. Philippians 2, 3. Don't let go of God until He gives you the mind of Christ. Who? Being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Philippians 2, 6-9. God has humbled himself, and yet man is proud. Rid yourself of your pride, because there's no grounds for it anyway. You have no reason to boast, except in God. So humble yourself before God and before man. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Oh God, we confess that there is no righteousness in us naturally that we have to offer to you. We depend entirely on the righteousness of Christ, on your righteousness that you freely give us. And so help us to live in such a way that is consistent with that confession, with our, that's consistent with our theology, with, that's consistent with what is actually true. And so give us the grace to humble ourselves before you and before one another, to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, because we need your Spirit to accomplish this in us. So we ask for it in the name of Christ. Amen.